Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. All right. Uh, good evening, everybody. Uh, I'm Bruce Robbie. I'm the CEO of Relevant Wealth Advisors, and I'm also on the Board of Governors of the Commonwealth Club. Uh, so it's my pleasure to have my company sponsor Marine Conversations. We do this one to two times a month. We usually it's here at the Outdoor Art Club uh, or somewhere else in Mill Valley. Uh, and, and take a look. The programs are, are just amazing. The Commonwealth Club has a history that goes back over 114 years. And one of the programs that I'm really proud of is our travel program. They're just unbelievable. If you're curious at all, these trips go everywhere in the world. They always include a subject matter expert. And they're not backpacking and tenting. They're, they're nice trips, great accommodations. You know, they're a lot of fun. You meet amazing people, and they go everywhere in the world. We have one coming up that's particularly interesting I want to share with you. It's called uh, Journey to the Dakotas and Colorado. And this is going to be a trip where you'll learn about a number of tribes, including the Sioux, Lakota, Dakota, the Ute, the Navajo, and the Apache Nations. Um, you're going to see the Badlands National Park. You're going to meet with community and tribe leaders, artists and activists, as well as experiences at Standing Rock and the Pine Ridge Reservations, site of the massacre of Wounded Knee. So overall, incredible trip, part of our, our American history. And if you have any questions, talk to Christina afterwards. Uh, there's brochures in the back. It's on the website. Uh, amazing trip that is uh, timely in relation to the event tonight. We also have a trip to New Zealand in February with adventurer Peter Hillary. Uh, he's the, uh, the son of Sir Edmund Hillary. So again, subject matter experts. You're not going to be able to do that trip anywhere else. And they're not, they're not that expensive, honestly. They're not cheap, but for the people that went, you have a great time? Yes. Five star. Oh, they've done four trips. Okay. So tonight we have a pretty exciting event. Um, Dr. Kent Blanzett and Rose Aguilar of KALW are here tonight. And uh, Kent's going to talk for about 30 minutes, a slideshow talking about his book and Richard Oakes. I'm going to introduce Kent. Uh, he's the Associate Professor at University of Nebraska-Omaha and the first biographer of Richard Oakes. So on that note, I think I'm going to get off the stage and hand the microphone over to Kent. Kent, thank you very much. All right. Thank you. Um, I want to first thank um, Adam Hirschfelder for uh, getting all this set up and um, inviting me here. And I want to thank the, the Marin uh, Commonwealth Club uh, for bringing me in tonight. Uh, this is really amazing. And thank you for taking time out of your, your schedule to join me tonight for a story that um, hopefully may be the first time you're hearing it, uh, but also you might find some inspiration in um, as we go forward. Uh, I wanted to introduce myself as well. Um, yes, as uh, he'd said, I'm Dr. Kent Blancet, Associate Professor of History and Native American Studies. I come from five nations on my father's side, uh, Cherokee Creek, Choctaw, Shawnee, and Potawatomi uh, descendant. Come from the Smith, uh, Panther, and uh, Blanket families um, in my family line. And um, I really got started on the story in, a, in an interesting way. I was a, a young student at the University of Missouri. And at Mizzou, they had about 3,000 remains of our ancestors that they were keeping in um, boxes and they were using for scientific study and experimentation, uh, which really violated our human rights and violated our religious freedom. Uh, so I got involved in activism and trying to repatriate those 3,000 ancestors back to our nation. And I started reading and I started going into the e-stacks at the library and I began reading about activism at that point and, and the Red Power Movement and I really came across how 
Alcatraz. And I was trying to learn what uh, our elders had done before um, in the sense of leadership and activism and, and learning from at least their successes, learning from the mistakes, but wanting to move that dial forward in repatriation. And that's when I started learning about Richard Oakes and Alcatraz. And what I learned was, you know, there wasn't a lot of his story that was down before Alcatraz. And a lot of it was mysterious afterwards. And it started me off on this 18-year journey uh, to begin writing this book um, on Richard, uh, which took me between the East Coast and the West Coast, took me into Canada, took me to Ganawage, to Akwesasne, to Brooklyn, San Francisco, and Seattle. Um, and out of that, all in a graduate student budget. Uh, so another reason it took me about 18 18 years to be able to do this project, um, a lot of traveling um, involved in this. Uh, but where we start is we start in a really uh, fascinating place, which is Richard Oak's uh, birth. And his uh, home community was Aquasasne. And Aquasasne is a really fascinating reservation. Uh, it's in upper state New York, uh, but it straddles the Canadian border. So half the reservation's in Canada, the other half is in the United States. Richard described his home community as six miles square, 3,000 people, 3,000 problems. Um, what he was hitting at was the, the complexity, the diversity of the politics of the situation of Akwesasne, which was a part of the larger Haudenosaunee Confederacy of six nations. Um, and out of this, on the Canadian side, they were organized as a reserve, is what they would call it. Uh, but there was a, a bifurcation line in which it was split. Uh, and one side was Ontario, one side was Quebec. And out of the 1876 Indian Act, you had different band councils for each of those provinces on the reserve. On the U.S. side, then you also had the IRA, or Indian Reorganization Act. Um, so you had also a state council, and then you had the traditional longhouse. You had those life chiefs. So there was about five different forms of government in which they were very political nation um, in which he was raised in and understanding the rights. And they had free passage across the border with Canada through the Treaty of Ghent and Treaty of Gay, Jay treaties um, in kind of the early 19th century. Uh, but there was an interesting component of the story, which is their sister nation, which is up here, uh, which is uh, Ganawage. Um, and Ganawage happens to be right across from Montreal. Um, and in the 18, mid 1800s, the story gets complex because, uh, Montreal wanted to build a bridge so they could basically get goods back and forth to the United States. They go to Ganawage, uh, to be able to build that bridge. And the Ganawage elders said essentially, well, you have to hire all Ganawage Mohawks to be able to build that bridge. And it was timber frame construction. Well, so they got involved in this building industry, and timber frame would eventually switch over to ironwork, and of course, Ganawage would then reach out to its sister community at Akwesasne and bring them into this ironworking labor force. And this is really where uh, Richard's story gets started, is with not only Akwesasne and Ganawage and the politics of his home community and being rooted in Haudenosaunee, and of course, um, that great law of peace uh, coming out of the Confederacy, but also the labor market of, of being an iron worker. And so Richard was actually a catcher uh, within an ironworking gang. And this is a picture of a catcher here. Uh, this was a story that was done in National Geographic in 1952. And of course, they would attribute like superhuman abilities to Mohawks because we were Indian, right? So uh, we had to be completely unafraid of working 80 stories up. And we had to have perfect balance when we were walking on those beams because we were just predetermined to have that physical stature. And every ironworker that I ended up interviewing said they were absolutely terrified. They were afraid. There was not one that was not afraid. And the big thing was is that they were able to command a strong force of that labor market. There was no discrimination. 
In other words, this was a job that you could get and not face discrimination in because no one wanted to work 80 stories up in the air without a safety net, without a harness, and do this work where you faced potential danger and or death. And you know what? They got paid a lot of money to do it. So this was something that would allow them to kind of, you know, increase the political economy and have that money go back at least into their community. So Richard got involved um, with ironwork mostly through his dad. His dad is Arthur Oaks. And this is a picture of Arthur Oaks here. Um, and so Arthur Oaks is, is on the far right. Um, and he's also with two other Ganawage Mohawks. Um, and he's on, standing on the top of the 110th uh, floor of the World Trade Center. Uh, so Richard's father actually built the North Tower. And his brother Leonard was building the South Tower. And a lot of people don't know this, but a lot of the first responders down to the scene of the World Trade Center were Mohawks. Um, because they'd know how to work with steel, they knew how to remove the steel, and they became kind of the first responders within this crisis um, that would happen with the World Trade Center. Uh, but Richard's father was in the uh, ironworking industry, and he kind of wanted to get to know his father more. His parents divorced when they were at a young age, and so he had an affiliation that he wanted to get to know his dad. His dad would bring him onto the ironworking force at the age of 16. So he'd leave school, he'd join this ironworking force, and become a part of these uh, flyboys of the industry, these riveters. And what the riveters would do is you'd have a guy kind of up here on the, the far left, and he would be um, heating up these rivets, which you can see here. Um, he would heat them up in these uh, coal buckets, and they'd get red hot. You'd have another guy who was a pitcher on the line. He would then throw them down, and then the catcher would catch them in those buckets, right, those tin buckets. And then they would hold them in place on the other side here, and this guy would have a pneumatic hammer, and they'd pound it down. And they would taper the end of that. And then, of course, when that rivet cooled, it would take all the oxygen out and it would give it a perfect seal. So all of Manhattan was built this way, one beam at a time, one rivet at a time. And 15% of the ironworking labor force in Manhattan were all Mohawks. It was all Haudenosaunee peoples. So New York City was built by indigenous hands and indigenous creativity. So this becomes kind of a phenomenon. This is what Richard's coming out of, right, is the organization of these ironworking gangs, the danger of it. And it's almost as I say, I started looking at this as, you know, he when he was interviewed, when he came out to San Francisco for Alcatraz, he seemed to lack any fear. And it's almost as I say, you know what? I worked 80 stories up without a harness. Talking to reporters is no big deal. So in other words, it also gave him this kind of lexicon to go from this early training and leadership organization structure that would then kind of be a part of his coming of age story. Um, out of this, he lived in a really strong Mohawk community in Brooklyn, which you can see here. It was the Red Hook and Orguanus district of, of Brooklyn. Um, and they would form a Mohawk city. There was about 600 to 700 Mohawks living there at the time. So if you walk the streets of these State Avenue, Pacific, or Nevins, you would hear people speaking Mohawk language. And they began to change and challenge that city into becoming a Mohawk city. Um, this is a really early picture. It's a really rare one. Um, this is the only picture I found of Richard when he was a child. Um, so this is Richard Oakes here sitting in the front with his shirt and tie and suit on. And his young brother, Leonard, uh, which they were only about two years apart or so, um, is sitting right behind his shoulder here. And this is the most important person in Richard's life. This was his mother, Irene Foote. Um, and this was one of the only photos that I could find of Irene. This is her cousin, Teresa Sullivan, um, and then one of Richard and Leonard's cousins sitting on her lap. Um, what happened is, is that the, um, after Arthur came back from World War II, which Arthur uh, was, in my best guesstimation, was also a Mohawk co-talker uh, during World War II. He was stationed on a destroyer. Some of his other relatives were behind the enemy lines that had paratrooped in. Uh, but when he came back from the war, his parents divorced. And, of course, Irene couldn't afford to be able to take care of the kids. They were in an orphanage 
until about the time of three. And I once asked Richard, you know, it was like, what was that like? And he said, well, the hardest days of being in the orphanage was visitation because you didn't know if anyone's ever going to show up. And oftentimes the hardest days is when no one showed up. Um, but Irene worked really hard. She was a divorcee woman working in Brooklyn. She worked two jobs, and eventually she found this home here, which was their childhood home. And it took me a while to be able to find this home, but uh, Leonard and Richard's uh, room was just up there on the second floor. Uh, but they grew up in this very strong um, Mohawk resilient community. Um, they dominated, at least in indigenizing the community, and one of those institutions was Coyer's First Presbyterian Church. The fascinating thing about that, Akwesasne and Ganawage, they're Catholic. So it doesn't say, well, why in the world does this church become kind of a Mohawk church? Well, this guy, Dr. David Corey, couldn't fill up his pews, and he was wondering, well, why can't I get anybody in my church? Well, his church was right in the middle of the Mohawk community. So then what he decided, he would do his sermons in Mohawk, and he translated the hymnal in the Mohawk language. And pretty soon, instead of going to the Catholic church, all the Mohawks started going to the Presbyterian church because you could speak your language in the community. They were indigenizing their community, making it Mohawk as they went along. So not only did this become another institution of the Mohawk city, it was the Indian bar. And there were several Indian bars within the district here. And one was uh, the Wigwam Bar and the Spar Bar Grill. There was also the Nevins Bar. Um, if you go to New York City today or to Brooklyn, uh, the Ironworker Bar is Hank's Saloons. So just a shout out to Hank's um, if you happen to be there. Uh, but the bars were interesting places. The Wigwam was actually um, owned by uh, other Ganawage Mohawks. And so there was Indian-owned businesses. And you walked into this bar. And there was a sign above at least the door, and it said, home of the greatest iron workers in the world. And then you walk in, there's posters of Jim Thorpe. There's posters of Sitting Bull. And then, of course, behind the bar, there were the Gustoe, uh, which was at least the headdresses. But the Gustoe, for them, were the hard hats. And it was the hard hats of those who had fallen that they gave us a certain place of, of honoring for. And so what was going on is that was a place of organizing, at least within the bar. It was a social scene. Cantonita Horn, who was a red power activist that was coming out of Ganawage, grew up just down the street from these bars. And she basically said, sitting on those stoops, it was better than watching Ozzy and Harry. It. That was a TV for the Mohawk kids is watching at least the bar. Uh, but out of this, it was, as I say, there was a very tight-knit community between the churches, between these institutions, between the grocery stores that had to carry a particular kind of flour for making this bean bread um, that was used during uh, ceremony or in um, important times, at least in Mohawk traditions. So out of this, they indigenized their city. And Richard got to be a part of the ironworking tradition there. And eventually, he would leave New York to move to San Francisco in 67. 68. And when he moved, he used all of his money to buy a 65, uh, 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 65 Mustang. And it was a convertible. And Leonard was like, you have to tell people that. And it was fire engine red. And he loved that car. But he drove it across the country in this kind of Gandhi-esque like trip. He was stopping off at different reservations. And he was like, well, where are you from? What are your people? You know, what's their histories, right? And he was learning. He was creating his own Indian studies class as he was going across the country, educating himself for a curriculum that didn't exist in his own education, K through 12. And in the process of that, he was learning about relocation. He was learning about termination and asking other people, well, how's it affecting you? How's it affecting your community? And San Francisco was home to a very vibrant community well before Richard ever got here. A community that by 1970 had over 40,000 native peoples living in San Francisco. 
In addition to that, people were coming here for the wartime industries. They were coming here before that in the 1920s because of at least the outing program at the boarding schools had sponsored. And even well before this, this was indigenous land. This is the territory land of the Costa um, Olane as well as the Miwok peoples. So in other words, this was an indigenous cities from its inception and origin. Richard Oaks was coming into a well-established network. And out of that network of it being an Indian city, one of the first jobs that he took, uh, which was interesting, and I love telling this story, he would get arrested. Um, and he got arrested, and his first arrest was um, outside of Onondaga. It was in Syracuse. And what it was is he was a part of this gang, and they saw this meat truck. And the guy kind of left the meat truck, and he left it idle. So they said, you know what? We're going to steal that. He steals the truck, and he drives it down to Onondaga Reservation. And he starts handing out meat to the people, like as Robin Hood, right? He's feeling really good. He's like, you want a porterhouse? You want a T-bone? What do you want? He's in the back of the truck. His buddies are in the front of the truck and the cops show. So he gets caught red-handed because he doesn't see the cops come and everybody run off and he gets arrested. Well, guess what his first job was in San Francisco? It was a truck driver. Think of the irony of that, right? Well, he doesn't last very long as a truck driver, and he eventually becomes a bartender at Warren Slaughterhouse Bar, which was another institution of the Indian city uh, within San Francisco. Now, Dean Chavers, who flew about 150 missions in Vietnam, who is also Lumbee, was a close friend of Richard Oaks, and he remembers at least Warren's Bar as being the grungiest, dirtiest bar in all of San Francisco. But um, it was so bad that they eventually had at least a garage door, so you wouldn't be thrown out of window that could raise it up if there was a fight that broke out. So there would be no harm to the bar. Uh, but the thing about it was Russell Means, who would later be a, a leader of the American Indian movement, would say that was the first place he ever heard about termination. In other words, there was political organizing. I mean, when we talk about the American Revolution, when we talk about the Sons of Liberty and organizing out of bars, how come we don't ever attribute that also to Native peoples in the sense of what we are talking about, what we are discussing in regards to revolution in the 1960s? And Warren's became another central part of that organizing strategy of the Indian community. It was also located just two storefronts down from the Indian Center on 16th Street in San Francisco in the heart of the Mission District. And so Richard's kids were actually getting tutoring on the second story of the Indian Center. And they would get tutoring from students that were coming out of San Francisco State at the time. And so out of this, uh, this is some pictures of the Indian Center. This is the one that was built kind of after uh, the Indian Center had burned down um, in October of 1969. But it became kind of the main central hub. And there was a policy of relocation that was started in 1948 that was moving Native peoples to six cities. And San Francisco was one of them. Uh, but oftentimes what the government would say is, well, we'll put you up with an allowance. We'll get you started. We'll find you a job. And we'll get you a place to live. But once you got out of the bus depot, there was none of that around. They were on their own. And this place, the Indian Center, is what was saving a lot of people at that time in the sense of being able to restore what the government services were not providing. And out of this, um, his kids would receive tutoring on the second floor by students out of San Francisco State uh, College. And San Francisco State College got caught up in some of the largest riots in all of campus history. They were very violent. Um, as you can see here, students were getting their heads cracked into the point where they had to wear helmets. And all this was is because the students wanted their courses to finally represent what their communities look like. Why don't we have Latinx and Chicanx studies? Why don't we have black studies? Why don't we have Asian American studies? And more importantly also, why, where, why don't we have Native American studies? And of course, the students walked off the campus. The faculty, my students love this, the faculty joined them and walked off the campus. 
And you know what? They were successful. They were able to create the first ever ethnic studies program at San Francisco State simultaneously, while Berkeley was also caught up in the Third World Liberation Front movement and created their own ethnic studies program and created also Native studies. But out of this, um, you would have at least S.I. Hayakawa, who's pictured here in the Berkeley barb, and then this fun individual who is the former governor of, of California, Everybody knows him, right? Uh, Ronald Reagan. So essentially Hayakawa, and this is interesting because he's Japanese-American, they painted him flying a Japanese Zero, and they painted the slogan, Remember Hayakawa, like Pearl Harbor. But now he's dropping police bombs on the students. And this is what would change everything, media right? Media exposure. How do we use the media to also make change in society as well, right? So Richard Oakes was kind of seeing this the whole time, and he would be elected to be the first coordinator of Native American studies at the young age of just 27 at San Francisco State uh, College. He would bring in the White Roots of Peace Caravan. And when I go to Haudenosaunee territory, they love this picture. Uh, this is, happens to be Tom Porter right here. And the reason being, he has lots of hair. So yeah, Tom Porter, very young, comes in. Um, and this uh, was Peter Mitten, who's Cayuga. This is Jerry Gamble. Jerry Gamble would actually start the first ever and most successful native newspaper, which was called Aquasazi Notes. He would write that first issue using Richard Oak's typewriter at San Francisco State. And of course, you know, they bring also with them the, the wampum. They bring the, uh, the belts uh, for the Confederacy and they begin educating people. And this is Richard Oaks. He's wearing the gustoe right here. And so this is part of his awakening as a Mohawk man, um, even at San Francisco State and the traditional traditions and imbibing of the traditions. And these are his kids. He would meet Annie Oaks at an anti-war uh, rally um, in San Francisco, fall desperately in love. Annie came uh, with five other kids um, into this, and those kids became Richard's kids. He loved those kids. Um, they became his own um, in those early years. But they also learned of something else at San Francisco State, and there was an earlier occupation. It's important to know that Alcatraz Island in 1963 was abandoned by the federal government. It was left up as surplus property. Well, uh, this is a young Russell Means right here, and this is 1964 in March, and of course this is imbibing a lot of what's happening in the Northwest with the Fishens in the same year, 1964. Uh, but they would use the Fort Laramie Treaty of 1868, um, which was a treaty in which the federal government had to abandon their forts throughout Lakota country. And in so doing, when they abandoned those forts, they became surplus property, and the Lakota owned that property. So what they said is, we got a treaty that says this is abandoned surplus federal property. We will take over Alcatraz in 1964. The, the occupation lasted all about an hour. But there was a key figure who's position right here, and that's Belva Cotier. And Belva Cotier happened to be at least the community liaison advisor for the students at San Francisco State and Berkeley. And she began telling them the story of 1964 and this occupation. The students at both of those campuses were getting together. And on the campus of Berkeley, they were led by Lenata Means, uh, who's now Lenata Warjack. And, of course, Lenata and the students at Berkeley began working with the students at San Francisco State and attending these kind of teaching classes that Jack Forbes was hosting at the Far West Laboratory, what the students called the Far Out Laboratory. Using that 60s terminology, they were learning about Native liberation tactics, and they were asking questions about what do we do next? What is our movement? What is indigenous? 
indigenous rights and how do we sponsor such a movement? And they got the idea. Why don't we go back to thinking about Alcatraz again? And why don't we take over Alcatraz and make that the stand? And Richard would be kind of leading the cause in this echoing of let's take over Alcatraz Island. Out of this, um, the initial occupation would start in November. Um, and part of this was the students initially wanted it to be in the summer when they would be out of classes. And of course, it would be easier. They may not get expelled. Their education wouldn't be put at risk. But something happened. The Indian Center burned in October of 1969, and things were heating up. It was now or never. And so November 9th was going to be a key date. They arrived down at Pier 33. They were going to basically go over to Alcatraz, um, and Richard stands before a group of reporters that are gathered around. He takes out some strips of red cloth. He takes out um, some beads, and he says, you know, we'll buy this island for the same amount of money that was purchased for Manhattan Island about 300 years ago, and $24 in glass beads and red cloth. And he begins reading a proclamation for a new organization that the students had chartered and started called Indians of All Tribes. In other words, it was not the American Indian movement. I always have to correct my students that took over Alcatraz. It was Indians of All Tribes that took over Alcatraz Island. And of course, out of this, uh, there was no boat. Um, they kept thinking, well, where's the boat, man? And the reporters are here. We can't allow this to momentum to kind of die. Pretty soon they would find this guy. And this guy was um, sailing this ship. It was like a Pirates of the Caribbean ship, right? Triple-masted ship. And his name was Ronald Craig. The ship was called the Monte Cristo. Um, and, of course, this guy was in a crushed blue powder leisure suit with a frilly cravat, a sword to go with it, right? He was the whole reenactor thing. He was flying the Canadian flag. The interesting thing was it was a reenacting ship for James Cook who was a colonizer of the Pacific, and that ship was the endeavor that the Canadian government requested a rebuild of that ship. Well, this guy was like, well, you know, that would be good publicity, you know, for the Monte Cristo, but I can't land you on the island because I don't want to get my ship impounded. So the students were like, I guess that's going to be good enough. So they pile up on this Monte Cristo with the guy with the crushed blue leisure suit, and they start sailing out to Alcatraz Island. And the press is going nuts. I mean, they're taking photos, they're in boats, you know, going by. He fires off the cannon, and everybody's like, oh, yeah, right on, you know. And you can feel that energy, but it wasn't going to be enough. For Richard, he walks to the front of the boat, he takes his shirt off. He turns back to everyone else. He says, come on, let's get it on. And he jumps into the frigid waters of the bay. And he begins swimming 250 yards to the island with his cherished pair of boots on and his blue jeans. And, of course, four others would follow him into the bay waters. In other words, where the boat wouldn't take him, he wasn't going to allow that to limit him. In other words, we're going to choose his own destiny. Native peoples, we're going to choose our own destiny, never to be limited again. And it was a huge stand. The crowd went wild. Republic, the reporters went wild. It hit the press massively. And you know what? He got taken off the island rather quickly. Um, and of course, they said, let's go back tonight. So they go back the next night as a scouting mission to be able to figure out, well, what's on the island? What could we use? How could we make this a bigger force? And then they get taken off the next day. Um, and, of course, they negotiate not getting arrested, which was very important. And Richard takes it to the next level. He begins speaking. He begins traveling up and down California to different universities, San Jose State, and he even goes all the way to Los Angeles and begins speaking at UCLA, where he meets a young Ed Castillo, who's Coela. And of course, in talking to Ed Castillo, he begins, you know, inspiring him automatically. And he begins inspiring a lot of his students at UCLA. And he's like, yeah, we'll, we'll come up. We'll do this. When's D-Day? November 20th, 1969. 
they check out a bunch of vans from UCLA and they van load a bunch of students up. Ed still admits he doesn't know what happened to those vans. They left them somewhere in San Francisco and somebody got them. But yeah, they came to that Alcatraz invasion and that invasion was going to be November 20th, 1969. And the invasion force was going to meet in Sausalito. Tim Finley, who was a reporter, had friends that operated the no-name bar, uh, one of those friends being at least Bruce Towns. And this gets us into the Sausalito Navy, in which uh, two other friends were called in with three boats, and they were to boatload over 89 of the students and or community members to set foot on Alcatraz Island. So our astronauts are landing on the moon, Indians are landing on Alcatraz. And what's bigger news? It was a native invasion of Alcatraz at this point. And the thing about it was, is what does Alcatraz represent? Well, Alcatraz is not an island. It's an idea. Those were Richard's words. It was powerful. It was symbolic. It represented a place that didn't have any employment, didn't have any running water, didn't have electricity, didn't have any jobs, didn't have any mineral wealth. And it was a prison abandoned by the federal government, like the federal government had abandoned us with our treaties, with our rights. So in other words, it was a perfect metaphor for teaching the world about indigenous rights. The perfect metaphor for creating change where change needed to happen. So out of this, they then created that proclamation. They began educating people. And pretty soon, media from Germany, from Japan, from all over the world were flocking to the Bay Area and, more importantly, to Alcatraz Island. And, of course, they were capturing the tension. This is a pic, my favorite picture of Richard and Annie. And the one thing I love about this, especially as a Native man, is the fact that he could show emotion. He could show his love openly. And have that captured in the cameras. And that was really important to be able to see that as a young Native man. To be inspired by this um, emotion that he shared. And it showcased his character and that charisma that he carried. But it also showcased the love between these two individuals. uh, Between Annie and Richard. Um, This is the only known post photo on the island. It was taken by Art Kane. Who is a famed celebrity portrait uh, guy. He took photos of the Who and Rolling Stones as well. Uh, But this appeared in Look Magazine. June um, uh, 2nd, 1970. The only post photo that was ever taken. Taken on the island. You can see Richard Oakes is here. This is Annie Oakes. Uh, this is young John Trudell with his daughter, uh, Tara Trudell. Uh, this is Stella Leach, Ray Sprang. And then this is uh, Ross Harden, who's on the end. And of course, uh, Joe Morris is kind of peeking in right through here. And um, out of this, it became a really kind of famous portrait. In other words, it was getting national attention in national publications um, like Look Magazine. And of course, the spokesperson was Richard Oakes. And these are rare uh, photos. Um, a lot of people have I've never seen these photos before. Um, this one is actually on the day of. This is November 20th. So this is Richard Oakes on the island. And then, of course, he would be the spokesperson. He would read the proclamation and, of course, um, be uh, listing the demands for the idea that they were going to create a title for Indians of all tribes to the island. They were going to create a university, an ecological center, a spiritual center, and, of course, an Indian center um, on Alcatraz Island. I love this one. It's good housekeeping. The cult of domesticity, right, is covering red power, right? And here you have at least Anthony Quinn. So famous actors were coming out to the island, too, to lend their support. Jane Fonda would give money for generators. So where there was no power, they would create power. That's red power, right? 
And out of this, not only would Jane Fonda donate money, Creedence Clearwater Revival would donate money and they would buy their own ferry boat. And they were highly organized. So, of course, they would create their own ferry boat and they would at least shuttle people back and forth. And one of the things that I began finding in my research that was fascinating is that the idea of coalition politics was a, a dynamic of the 1960s that's oftentimes missed by scholars. And that there was communication back and forth between the movements. In other words, um, what we have here is the Brown Berets. And the Brown Berets would uh, lead a moratorium march in East L.A., and that moratorium march was against the Vietnam War, and I started watching clips of this, of the parade procession in East L.A. in 1970, and you have this banner right there, Indians of all tribes, this idea of coalition politics, right? And then eventually, of course, the Brown Berets would lead a takeover of Catalina Island in 1972, echoing the Alcatraz occupation, finding their indigeneity in these other issues of collaboration. Uh, the Black Panther Party as well. This is a newspaper for the Black Panther Party. This is Poundmaker, who is a leader of the Louis Rial Rebellion on the Canadian side. And then, of course, you have Geronimo. So across the borders, right? The Western Hemisphere. And then influencing Panther Party members like Geronimo Pratt, who changed his name to Geronimo. And this idea of liberation and third world liberation movements. They would also, the Black Panther Party and the Mission Rebels would come in and offer to work security. This is a rare photo of Richard Oakes here. This is a young John Trudell meeting with Black Panther Party members and Mission Rebels. In other words, that coalition politics was really strong for the 1960s. They organized supply lines in which they were able to run supplies in despite Coast Guard blockades. Um, in addition to that, um, at least they brought their families. And I always make this point. They didn't carry guns to the island. This was a nonviolent movement. They carried their children. They carried their future. They carried their families. They carried their community. And that was what they were showing the world. That's our strength. That's our heart, in other words. These are some other rare photos. This uh, were taken on November 20th, 1969. Um, nobody's ever seen these photos. Um, and, of course, this is Annie Oaks um, here, and she's walking with uh, Yvonne Oaks. And Yvonne Oaks was all of about 13 years of age um, at the time. And in January of 1970, tragedy would befall the island. She would fall from uh, the third floor of the Ira Hayes building, and she would lose her life on January the 5th, 1970. Um, and Richard was devastated. Annie was devastated. Uh, the community came together to try to rally for them, uh, but his heart was broken. But he took a new message, that same message, Alcatraz is not an island, it's an idea. And he took it outside of the island. He began doing Native liberation with other organizations throughout um, Northern California, like the Pitt River Nation. And then he would go up in March in 1970, some really great images of Richard uh, from the island. Um, he would go up, and of course, out of this, I wanted to go back here. We have images of the organization structure itself. This is Radio Free Alcatraz, which was a nationally syndicated radio show um, coming off of Alcatraz Island, led by a young uh, Santee Nation um, citizen, John Trudell. This is Grace Thorpe, the daughter of the most famous athlete of the second half of the 20s, or the first half of the 20th century, Jim Thorpe. And of course, they have literature on the table, Custer Died for Your Sins and Edgar Kahn's um, book as well, to showcase the intellectualism, showcase that this was a philosophy and ideology uh, backing this occupation. And John would interview um, at least people on the syndicated radio show, and it would educate people about the Indian experience all across the country. They created their own newsletters, and they published these, and they sent them all across the, the uh, United States to major universities, organizations, even individuals, and they liberated the island with political statements. And so Custer had it coming is my favorite one. Uh, but of course you have, you are on Indian land, red power, 
taken by Oaks outside of his room. And then, of course, you have this one, which I love, that people most of the time walk by and never really notice. But if you look in the middle of it, it says free. So taking a symbol of justice and indigenizing it and decolonizing it, right? And this became kind of an important factor uh, for making these political statements, not graffiti. Well, Richard Oakes, uh, shortly thereafter, would do a BIA takeover, and this is in Alameda. So he takes over the BIA in California um, and leads this takeover. It's, it literally happens in a matter of hours, and they agree to leave. Uh, but they make a statement with that. Well before the 1972 BIA takeover, uh, that became Richard's idea. He would then be recruited up to Seattle, and Seattle had created another organization called United Indians of All Tribes named after the same organization that inspired Alcatraz. Um, one of the leaders of that movement was also Bernie Whitebear. And then, of course, he would bring in Alcatraz veterans like uh, uh, John Vigil or Jaquiti, who's pictured here. Uh, this back here is uh, Robert Satyakum, who was a part of the Fissions movement. Mike McLeod, and of course, Gary Bray, who was also uh, part of the movement here, who was from Colville, who was an Alcatraz veteran. And then, of course, Sid Mills, who was another Alcatraz veteran as well, um, were a part of the occupying force. And what they were occupying was is the military declared Fort Lawton surplus property. So now they're taking over a military base. You can imagine the field day the press was having, Indians invade, military fort. I mean, it's like the perfect John Wayne moment, right, for the press. But the thing was, is we were successful. They got, after three attempts, they would take Fort Lawton. And today it's the Daybreak Star Indian Center in Seattle. In other words, they were meeting with success. And this was creating momentum for the movement. Even after Alcatraz, there would be a 100 occupations across the country, which there was an occupation at Wrigley Field, and then another one that would happen at Ellis Island. Um, out of that, this is Jane Fonda. Jane would actually go to the wrong fort. She would go to Fort Lewis instead of Fort Lawton. Um, and so out of that, she would create a, a, a press conference um, later on. And you can actually see the MPs. Um, actually, this is a sling on Bernie Whitebear and a sling here on Sid, and his face is bruised up. Um, they held the men later in the jail cell and beat them in to the night and then would release them at three in the morning thinking the press wouldn't be there. And that's where Jane held the press conference to be able to showcase what the MPs had done to them. They were really hard on Sid Mills because he refused a second tour of duty in Vietnam. He refused to go back and do to the Vietnamese people what was already done to native peoples on this homeland. He at least found that to be a contradiction and refused to go. These are some images to be able to show the MPs removing people. Uh, but more importantly, it was a success. And he would take this success and he would go to Northern California. In Northern California, there was a Pitt River Nation. They held 3.5 million acres of land. And then, of course, the Indian Claims Commission in 1947, because they never gave title to this land away, they never signed it away, they offered them 47 cents an acre, which was an insult. They refused to take it, just like the Lakota refused to take any payment for the Black Hills. And so out of this, multinational corporations like Kimberly Clark and another one that's really famous in the news lately, PG&E, have moved onto the land and was taking their resources away from them. So they began organizing occupations. The big thing was they began occupying PG&E lands, and they wanted to get arrested. And so when the cops came out and they were noticing everybody was laughing and smiling about getting arrested, they're like, why are you laughing? Oh, well, you're charging us with trespass, right? They're like, yeah. It's like, okay, good. You do realize that in a court of law, you've got to prove that you have original title of that land, and you don't. And you know what? They were successful. In court of law, they've cited on behalf of the Pitt River Nation that they held the original title, not PG&E. And this would draw the attention also of PG&E Corporation. 
Eventually, Richard would go to uh, San Francisco to serve as citizen's arrest on the head of the PG&E Corporation. Later that night, he would be celebrating at Warren Slaughterhouse Bar, and a guy by the name of Tommy Pritchard would sneak up behind him with a pool cue and beat him almost senseless. He would be carried home that night, and he would try to wake him up near the morning. He would not wake up. He was unresponsive. They took him to the hospital. He was in a coma. And then, of course, they would call in medicine people. The doctors gave him up for, for dead, essentially. They were like, Western medicine has met its course. We can't do anything more for him. Later, he would be doctored by Peter Mitten, who's here, who's Cayuga, and this is Mad Bear Anderson, who's Tuscarora. And Peter Mitten would go into the back room, take out a tincture, begin mis- mixing it up. He put it in Richard Oak's IV. And doctors watched this. Within an hour, he had a red circle on his chest. Another hour, his body went flush red. Another hour later, his eyes popped open. Another hour after that, he was talking. They're like, what did you give him? Peter Mint was like, I can't tell you that. They're like, well, why not? Well, the moment I tell you is the moment we as indigenous people don't have access to this treatment anymore. And he was pinpointing something important, what was happening with the pharmaceutical industry even at that time. That we were aware of that kind of struggle. Richard Oakes would have to teach himself to walk again. He would have to teach himself to talk again. And out of this, he still continued to organize. This is a picture of him at the PG&E trials. This is Shermer Sibley, who is the president of PG&E. This is how much attention he got from the company. The president attended these trials. And this is Richard Oakes going over to him with a sign and him trying to race out of his seat so the photographer can't get the photo. In other words, they were making significant change, powerful change that they were talking about for the Pitt River Nation. Out of this, in 1972, he would do other occupations even before this. They'd take over Rattlesnake Island, Clear Lake occupations. They'd take over the Tyon Job Corps Center, which then would be given over to title to the Wintu Nation. And then, of course, um, in 1972, there was a YMCA day camp um, located off Kashaya Reservation or Stewart's Point, where his wife Annie was was from, and that's where they were living at the time. And uh, the person that was running that camp was a guy named Michael Oliver Morgan. He had two prior attempts on Richard Oak's life, and then in September of 1972, he would take a loaded welder P38 9mm, march down to Skag Springs Road, meet Richard, and literally um, shoot him in cold blood. Uh, within um, a matter of moments, he was charged with first-degree murder. Those charges were then, within an hour, dropped to voluntary and involuntary manslaughter. And by 1973, he was found not guilty in a Northern California court of law for executing and assassinating Richard Oakes. Out of this, it would ignite a movement. Hank Adams would say, we're doing a march on Washington. And that's what would create the Trail of Broken Treaties March on Washington. They'd take over the BIA building in 1972. But it was built around the injustice in this case on Richard Oakes and the taking of his life. Today, we honor Richard Oakes. At San Francisco State, they have the Richard Oakes Multicultural Center. And then, of course, um, out of this, Google Doodle would eventually, in uh, 2017, in the honor of Richard Oakes' birthday, create a doodle doodle for Richard Oakes. Uh, But out of this is a movement that would transform Indian rights forever. Um, In 1970, Richard Nixon would end the policies of termination and relocation. Out of this, he would be given Taos Blue Lake back to Taos Pueblo. And they would spark a revolution in legislation, which over 26 pieces of self-determination legislation was passed. Like I have to remind my students, in 1978, they passed the American Indian Religious Freedom Act. We didn't have a religious freedom until 1978 in this country. Even then, it was still tested up until 1996. Another 29 cases of Supreme Court decisions, like the Bolt decision eventually, would also back indigenous sovereignty and put us back on the page of being government to government with the federal government again. In other words, the spark for this, the launch of a global indigenous rights movement, 
was Alcatraz itself. It was the heartbeat of the indigenous rights movement. So some of my uh, later books, I'm working on a book on red power and, and popular culture. I'm happy to go into that in, in, in more detail. And of course, um, also working on uh, another history of the Native American Rights Fund, uh, which was like our NAACP um, that also gets its start in 1970, which is coming up on an anniversary. Anyway, thank you very much uh, for your attention for that. And I really appreciate it. I'm looking forward to more conversations. Well, thank you for that. I, I just, before we started, I said, you are on. I mean, you spent 18 years on this book. Before we go any further, hi, everyone. Thank you for coming tonight. Uh, my name is Rose Aguilar. And just to introduce myself, I'm also native on my dad's side. Hi, dad, who's here tonight. Uh, my grandmother was Pomo and my grandfather was Paiute. And I host a daily show on KALW 91.7 FM. It's called Your Call. And it airs, thank you, airs from 10 to 11 daily. And we talk about politics and social issues things that actually matter. So I hope you can tune in. We do a lot of shows about Native issues. I I think probably more than most. I think that's why diversity in the media is so important. So I read your book, and it was really incredible. 18 years you spent. You took a little bit of time off for school, but that's a long time to spend on a topic and an issue. Yeah, um, it's it was a journey in and of itself, which kind of fits in with the title of the book a bit. Um, but yeah, no, I, it started off, like I said before, in doing activism and, and wanting to know more about um, what those had done, who had come before me, what the, they had done before in Red Power Movement. And out of that, yeah, I got into um, a biography course. Um, and they kind of said, well, you know, hey, is there somebody that just stuck in the back of your mind that you wanted to know more about? Well, that's who you should write about. And for me, like instantaneous, it was Richard Oaks. Um, and out of that, too, like it, doing it on a graduate student budget um, and traveling to coast to coast and going into the communities, but taking the time to sit with a lot of the veterans of the movement and to hear those stories um, and to make sure that I'm trying to get it as, as accurate as I can possibly get it. Because there was a lot of misinformation is what I began finding on the movement. And I really wanted to do something that kind of cut through that a little bit more. Uh, but also there's another uh, side of it, which was the responsibility of writing a story uh, for an individual that never got justice in his own life. Um, and, and for me, it was wanting to really um, uh, put the spotlight on that. And, and, and ask a bigger question. Um, how far have we come? Um, really? And out of that, you know, is to say that, you know, um, there's this other central issue, um, uh, which Richard always pointed out and he'd always say, you know, that, um, in Indian country, there's a dual system of justice and showcasing that through his life and his lived experience. But more importantly, what kind of example, you know, in, in a metaphor of a role model um, that these veterans and our, what I would call our heroes of my generation are to us as an inspiration, that I wouldn't be sitting on this stage if that, if that didn't happen, if they didn't take the risk, they didn't put their bodies on the line and say, you know what, it's now or never. And that gave me breath, and it gave my, gave my generation breath. So it's, it's one of those things of paying it forward and returning the gift, mm. as we would say. You know, I loved learning about the Mohawk iron workers in New York. How many of you knew about this history? So a decent amount. And I just wonder, you know, when I go to cities, first off, I always see if they have a native museum, and usually they don't. And then I look for wayside exhibits or statues or just some information about indigenous people, and it's really hard to find. 
even in San Francisco, which should not be the case. So what will it take in a place like New York, where millions of people visit every year? Why don't we have signs? I mean, you said that the iron that Mohawks worked on was used to build the Empire State Building, Rockefeller Center, and other well-known skyscrapers. We should know that they were built by Mohawk people. Yeah, no, it's it's a Mohawk city. Um, and I think that's another part of it, right, is, is indigenizing the space again. Um, you're on indigenous land, first and foremost, no matter if there's a skyscraper on it or not. And it was built by our ingenuity in our own hands. And I think, you know, one of the things I've been working on is, is digital history. And we, we created um, what is called the American Indian Digital History Project. And part of this is, is to recover a lot of our um, resources like Aquasasni notes. So we uh, digitized that and we put it up online. Uh, but it's the first time it had ever been digitized and it's free. So if you go to www, this is my only plug, 8hip.com, um, you'll be able to see those resources and they're free. They're, you can read them in their original form. And what it been, has been going on is that you have larger companies that have gone out and, and are digitizing these resources, and then they sell them back to universities for like thirty to $40,000 a year in a subscription, while our communities don't have access to those resources. So you know what? That digital revolution was supposed to make these things free and searchable. So what we've been doing is, is creating a digital co-op if you will, in the sense of liberating those sources for our communities again, but to also encourage greater reporting. And to take it one step further, one of the things that we want to do is create a treaty app, but also then create an indigenous tourism app. So any city or any place you go to in America, you can learn that history. And people can contribute to that history and learning about the indigenous experience throughout America. So that when you go to New York and you go to Empire State Building, you click, click on that app, you'll know that that is built by Mohawk ingenuity and Mohawk hands. And you'll have that other tour guide along with you the entire time. And that's one component in the sense of that, that spirit of Alcatraz, that idea of Alcatraz. That would be amazing. I understand that when you did your research, you picked up a lot of books about the movements of the 60s and the 70s. You read about the Black Panther Party. You read about the Brown Berets. And there was hardly anything about indigenous issues in these books. Yeah, that, that was what I was finding out because I would go to the index of a lot of the literature on uh, the Black Panther Party and I wouldn't see anything there. And then I'd uh, do the same with the Brown Berets. And I remember uh, when I was an undergraduate, we had Bobby Seale uh, come to the University of Missouri. And I got a chance to ask him point blank. I was like, you know, so uh, what's the deal with, you know, Pratt changing his name to Geronimo Pratt? What was the connection there, right? And what was the connection to indigenous history? And he said, well, ironically, as a kid, I, all I did was read indigenous histories started identifying as Native peoples with that resistance movement. And it became kind of inspiring for him and his generation. And out of that, um, it was, as I say, they found kind of strength in that indigeneity. Um, but it also, uh, uh, for them, you know, made an affiliation with finding out who they are. And the fact that they've been, they were also going through systems of colonization that was stripping away and eroding their own sense of tribalism and where they came from. And some of that had to do with long legacies of slavery. Some of that had to do with discrimination and s segregation in that era. And what connection with indigenous peoples did is it, it freed them for the first time to be able to think in indigenous constructs. 
And so it created this affiliation in new ways. And we'd see this spin off uh, with the Brown Berets and this idea of Atzlan, this idea of, of uncovering the Chicano and the indigeneity that had been stripped for so many generations through colonization as well. And that what was really happening at Alcatraz was this greater movement to unite the Western Hemisphere and recover that sense of indigeneity, which I think is really powerful. Um, but out of this was that coalition politic, too, that was that grassroots activism that it was missing from the history books. And it's as I say, you know, that's fascinating to me, that people were coming together from different sectors of America, from different experiences, from different histories, and they were working together for social change and social justice. And it, it, what happens in our society when we forget to look at that, right? When we forget that that coalition politics is the root of the 60s. It transforms how we begin to see space or how we work with people or how we politicize. And we get divided into these different camps instead of coming together. And I think that's the true message of the 60s was how do we come together? It's a reason why the Beatles have a song about coming together, right? So out of this, it says to say, well, let's, you know, kind of decolonize our history a bit and rewrite it and write the Black Panthers back into um, Indian history, write the Brown Berets back into Alcatraz. And let's talk about that openly because I think that's important. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at CommonwealthClub.org. Now back to our program. What struck you about Richard's experience connecting with other natives in San Francisco. We had Lenita Warjack on the show recently, and she said, it's important to remember that on the tribes, we dealt with so much poverty. But then if you left, you dealt with so much racism. Um, she was in Idaho, and she had to deal with no Indians or dogs allowed signs. My great-grandmother and grandmother had to deal with that up in Ukiah where they couldn't even go into a restaurant, except for a Chinese restaurant that had a curtain, and they had to sit behind it. So then you have the relocation program, and a lot of natives from around the country came here and other big cities, but they had to leave their homes and their families. So what what really struck you when you read about the experiences they had when they got here? Yeah, um, well... That's where termination and relocation are, are kind of always couched in as destructive policies. Um, the idea being, I think, for relocation, what a lot of people don't realize is that um, it really has a, a more sinister beginning. It starts with Dylan Meyer, who is um, part of the relocation or war relocation authority during World War II. He was in charge of Japanese internment. He would then become the director of the Bureau of Indian Affairs. And in 1948, he would create relocation as a way to get Indians away from our communities into the cities where we were to become detribalized, right? Where we'd cease to be Lakota, we'd cease to be Comanche, we'd, we'd cease to be Cherokee, and we would assume kind of an American, ethnic American identity as Indian Americans or Native Americans. And this disconnect would disenfranchise people um, through that, right? We would be a part of that melting pot where we'd forget who we are. Um, but the problem is that's not what happened. Native peoples are too resilient for that. We always have been. And so what we did is we came together. And we formed institutions. We built an Indian city. And we, where the federal government would fail, we pick up our own selves. And, and the process of that, it united a community. And, and we challenged those policies through that unification. 
Um, one out of seven Native peoples went on relocation. By 1970, half of our population was living in urban environments. And we became very, you know, a part of our who we are is that Indian city experience. But it wasn't necessarily something that was away from us. Um, it had always been there. Uh, but in the process of that, it created this really uh, intrinsic network uh, for organizing in which the city didn't become uh, opposite of the res. The city became an extension of our home communities. It was a satellite community that fed back in, much like those iron workers that would return back to Akwesasne and basically do infrastructure and building and, um, you know, moving uh, those politics forward. Um, termination became another complication with that because in 1953 they decided to legislatively eradicate Native nations one after another. Um, and this policy would have the Klamath Act, the Menominee Act, and pretty soon that federal trust responsibility was destroyed. Those treaty relations destroyed and you were then under the, uh, the, the whim of the state. And we don't know to this day how many Native peoples moved to the city because of termination because nobody was keeping track of those statistics, right? Of the tribes that were terminated that would go into the cities. So out of this, it says to say, um, what I wanted to do is also look at this idea of why did people move? Because relocation was also voluntary. But they were also being sold a prescription that was didn't exist. They were being sold at least placebos, which was this idea, yeah, we'll support you as a federal government. We'll give you a job. We'll give you two jobs. You'll have a living. And it's coming from Pine Ridge where you're 80% employment. So, of course, that's going to sound good. I got two jobs. My kids are going to be in the public school system. I'll have a new life. Yeah, sure. Why not go on relocation? But when you get here and those, bro those promises become broken, then there was something else that had to happen. And that's where the community picks in. And I think for me, it's about uplift. It's about seeing the power of that story, not with the federal government, which is what scholars have always done. It's about us rising up. That's the story, right? How did we overcome those insurmountable odds of relocation and termination and forge together unity in a community? That to me was power. That's red power. We're going to take questions soon. So if you have any, please get them ready. Or if you have any stories to share, we would love to hear from you. Let's talk about where we are today. What I find really inspiring is new books are coming out on a regular basis by natives. I mean, we're getting more books than I think ever. And then you talked about good housekeeping covering Alcatraz. Well, Teen Vogue is now writing about amazing indigenous women. <laughs> and there's all these documentaries and we had Standing Rock, still have Standing Rock, um, I don't know more. I mean, there's so much incredible activism happening right now because of social media. We've got native Twitter and so many young people are saying, you know, thanks anthropologists, but we'll tell our own stories, you know? So what are your thoughts when you look at where we are right now? And, and you're, you're a teacher. So you have a uh, professor. So you have yeah. a lot of contact with young people. Yeah, no, that's, that's a great question. Um, you know, and it, it's, it's fascinating to me. Um, I think what we're in the midst of is seeing another, uh, native renaissance, uh, is that we're in the midst of. We're seeing new literature coming out, seeing Tommy Orange getting, you know, national book awards. Um, we also have a, a plethora of literature, um, like Heartberries, um, that had just come out too, that was winning awards at speaking truth and honesty to power, um, about our lived experiences. And out of this, it, it's really exciting times to be living in again. And I think that's great. And it's, it's encouraging to see young native peoples or young native students in the classroom, especially when we start talking about Alcatraz, it becomes about empowerment, um, for them. And there's an excitement, there's an energy, there's an electricity throughout Indian country. 
Um, and, and I think out of that, uh, we're beginning to see those new new movements. And of course, social media uh, transformed uh, those movements. I mean, uh, if, if only they had cell phones on Alcatraz during the takeover, you know, what could have been done, right? Uh, with Twitter and, and Facebook and social media and Instagram. Um, and it showcases, I think, for my students, like, wait, they did that without Twitter? Yeah. How do they do that? Okay, well, let's talk about organizing. Mm. And then we have Standing Rock, right? But we also have Mauna Kea. Um, and we have this movement, too, which is, is kind of electric that happened out of Alcatraz, which, which ignites a global indigenous movement in which in Australia they began in 1970 to create 10 cities um, for uh, an aboriginal rights movement in Australia. In 1970, at least a lot of the Maori elders at Aotearoa began uh, talking to Treaty Watangi um, and the idea of, of liberating and using that treaty, much like the Treaty of Fort Laramie, to secure at least those lands back, but also recover the language and the culture and go through revitalization and a renaissance of their own. So we begin to see this triggering. Sami begin leading hunger strikes to protest against a hydroelectric dam um, on Sami territory, all in 1970. All this triggering coming out of Alcatraz, global indigenous rights. And I teach a course, um, which is always fascinating. It's um, this idea of, of decolonizing the mind, right? That it's not just us as Indians that have to decolonize. It's the world, right? Can you explain what that means to decolonize the mind? Yeah. Um, so I teach a course on global indigenous history. And what I do at the very beginning of that course is I ask my students to go around the room and identify themselves as indigenous. And so a lot of my non-native students really have trouble with that. They're like, I'm not indigenous. I'm like, oh, well, let's, let's investigate that, right? Or I have students that are like, well, I'm American. I'm like, what? You, you just acquitted your, your, who you are with a nation state. That's not who you are. That's not where you're from. That's not your roots, right? Um, that's not what grounds you. It's not what gives you soul and spirit. So in other words, this idea of my, my indigenous students, my native students begin looking around like, oh, but if we say all my relations, that means all our relations. If we look at the world through indigenous eyes, then it says to say, this is a part of the process of decolonizing the mind, right? And finding people to relate through these terms, much like the political coalitions, much like the Black Panthers that begin saying to themselves, how am I indigenous? Or Chicanos and the Brown Berets saying, how am I indigenous? And how does that empower me? How are we empowered by indigenous studies and indigenous histories? Why is it that in the K through 12 that's missing from our curriculum? And I have students that when they take a native history class, they get angry. Why was I never taught this? And this is 2019 and it's still happening, right? It shouldn't be missing. And all Americans should be angry about that. And so what we do is we do curriculum days. And so we go and we work with teachers that never got this in their education and they're giving a state-sponsored curriculum where they do the, the, the greatest five hits of Native history usually, right, with Columbus in 1492. Then you skip right to Pocahontas and Jamestown. And then we jump maybe to Sacagawea. Maybe we'll do the Trail of Tears. And then hopefully, maybe, just maybe, we'll talk about what they call the Battle of Wounded Knee, not the Massacre. A wounded knee. And then we stop. Indians disappear from the textbooks in most statewide curriculums. That's horrible. To where students are saying, well, I didn't know there were still Indians. Yeah, you're assuming a master narrative from the, from the early part of the 19th century and 20th century that all Indians disappeared. And that's still happening to this day. So there's an, a revolution that has to happen in our, in our curriculum, all through schools in America, which is bringing back that history. 
right? Students need to sometimes maybe walk out and maybe sometimes faculty need to walk out in that experiment at San Francisco State to bring us back to that heart again. Uh, but these are lessons that we have to learn as a society, and I think that's an important part of it. In terms of media, because it is so powerful, and, and you write a lot about how the occupation just really made some incredible changes because so many media were kind of obsessed with what they were doing. It, it's disconcerting when you see the media only focus on suicide, poverty. I'm really glad they're finally talking about murdered and missing indigenous women. There's, that's getting a lot more attention. But I do wonder, um, my dad's friend Sue is here and she's Navajo and she went to visit her aunt recently and she doesn't have running water still. You know, I, I just read about, um, I don't remember what tribe, but I went to the Blackfeet nation in 2005 and they didn't have paved roads or mailboxes. So you do have these issues that deserve so much more attention. And I understand the the desire to focus on moving forward and these movements, and that's great. But at the same time, you also have to say, 2019, no running water in this wealthy country? So... And even if the water ran, sometimes you don't want to drink it. Well, right? Flint, I mean, it's in our backyard. Yeah. I mean, we're learning so much about lead in the water. Yeah. 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 Uranium is a part of that. But, but yeah, no, I mean, you're, 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 you're spot on with that. And, and, you know, in the classroom, it's, it's a hard history to teach. Not only do students get angry, but I also have native students that are like, I feel, I feel traumatized again, um, in learning this history. And we have to then step back and, and think about that and, and how we position, um, how we respond to, to our histories as indigenous peoples. Um, and out of this, it's, um, one of those things in working with native students that I always have to say, well, how do we, how do we then become inspired by that? Meaning, um, how do we empower ourselves that, you know, my ancestors on the trail of tears in which we would lose half of our population, um, in our removal from our homelands, uh, to Indian territory, um, I can't allow that to keep traumatizing me, but I have to think about those ancestors and the insurmountable odds that they overcame to be able to give me life. And that I have to hold on to that and think, oh my gosh, they were able to overcome that and the things in my life seem small now, right? It gives me power. And so out of this, it's a, it's like reframing, decolonizing the mind, right? And how we think about our histories and how we're inspired by those, those stories. Um, in the sense of where we find strength in, in our communities again, strength and resilience and being able to survive without that water, be able to survive without those street signs where you're having to say, yeah, go down over that hill, go through the wash. And then at that second cactus, it looks like an L, you take a left, right? And then you'll get to old man Smith's house, right? Or Hogan. Um, you know, those, those are really important. And, you know, I think, um, having spent time out there, um, and with a lot of the elders and herding the sheep, um, that was the, that was the thing, right? That's the, that's our ownership. Um, and we see the language alive. We see those traditions alive at Navajo Nation. Uh, but we also see this disparity, too, um, in regards to a lack of resources and allocated resources that are supposed to be there through our treated rights. Um, and so we have a long way to go with indigenous rights in this country still. One more question, and then we'll take questions from all of you. You went to Alcatraz yesterday, and it was a very powerful day for you and everyone there. Uh, 
There's going to be an exhibit, actually, for anyone who wants to go see it until... When, how long does it last? 19 months like the occupation. 19 months, okay. So if you can, take a trip over there. Talk to us about that day and what it was like to be there. Uh, you're going to get me teared up. Um, so so for me, um, it, these are my heroes. Um, they're my veterans um, of this movement. Um, I look up, up to all of them for what they were able to do. And out of this and triggering this really critical and important movement in this country, I mean, um, I think Julian uh, Brave Noise Cat had put it really well on this issue of, you know, uh, Selma. And what if we didn't know about Selma? What if we didn't know what had happened or occurred there? Well, Alcatraz is our Selma. Um, and, of course, it triggered this movement that changed everything in our world. And out of it, for me, there's a spirit there. It's a, it's a sacred place. Um, my first experience going to the island uh, was in uh, 1999, 2000, and I'd you know been studying it before then in grad school, and I'd seen these you know uh, photographs of the political statements on the island, um, but it didn't I didn't get it right. And then this is one of the things I always tell my students: when you write history, you got to go to the places. You can't just study about it in a book. You have to go and talk to the people, go to the places, and experience it. So this was my experience as I get on the boat and we're going out to Alcatraz. And, and I remember I walked to the front of the boat and because um, I want to see where Richard would have jumped off to do that swim. And I'm all geeking out and I'm just a big indigenous nerd is really what you got to know. Um, and so I'm at the front of the boat and I'm all like excited and I'm taking pictures. And, and you know, nobody gets what I'm doing up there. right? Like, What's that Indian doing on the front of the boat over there? And uh, yeah, no, but I'm just living it. I'm, I'm feeling it. I'm trying to think, you know, the sights, the sounds, the seagulls flying over, hearing the seagulls, seeing the crimson structure of the Golden Gate Bridge and that island becoming closer and closer, that notion of freedom coming closer and closer. And the boat goes around, and then it gets to the dock. And there's this giant sign that says, Indians, welcome. And then I was like, I thought about it, and I was like, oh, my gosh. Yeah, no, that's that there. That's the first welcome sign I've ever seen in my homeland. Why is it that's the only sign I've ever seen in my homeland, in Indian country, to make me feel welcome here? Oh, that's free. That's freedom. It was liberating as a young Indian man going to Alcatraz. In other words, what they did in painting those political statements, little did they know the rippling effect of the generations that would be affected. They were helping me decolonize my mind, even in the present day situation of experiencing that. So when we were there um, for the 50th the other day, a lot of the veterans got to go. And touch up that Indian welcome. They got to paint Indian welcomes, but they got to liberate that sign again and restore it back even to the edits that were there before the marshals came and burned that sign down. And they got to put United Indian property on that sign. And it was overwhelming for me to watch, to see the connections after 50 years, to see that returning of the gift that was going through that and feeling that power of that island and that this island has become sacred space in Indian country. I mean, over the course of that occupation, over 10,000 people would make their way. Some would say 5,600. I believe it was more like 10,000 native peoples over the course of 19 months made their way to that island. Now today, what's interesting to me is 1.4 million people will go to that island as tourists. And the first thing they do is they come under that Indian welcome sign. They learn about the occupation of Alcatraz. 
So what's important to me is, you know, the, the ideas and the visions of Alcatraz and the takeover was not a failure. It, what I argue is it was, it was success. Because it changed and transformed Indian country forever. The university that they wanted became DQ University that they took over in Davis. The Big Rock School that they started on an island become a charter school within San Francisco. Healthcare would also arise, a new healthcare center in 1970 within the Mission District out of this. The plans and the visions that they had came true. Now, granted, we didn't get the island, but it went bigger than that. And a vision that I don't know that you can really see in the time. I mean, as a student, there's things that you do, and you don't know the repercussions until 50 years later, right? And you see them. And you begin to see this sacred space to the point where on the West Coast, or on the East Coast, I mean, you have a Statue of Liberty. On the West Coast, you have Alcatraz Island, right? So this idea is Alcatraz has become the second most populated urban park in the country, second only to the Statue of Liberty. So now we have a Alcatraz Island as a memorial, a monument to at least the sacrifice of indigenous peoples in this country. That idea that Richard Oak said that this would be our Statue of Liberty in Alcatraz Island, right? It came true because now 1.4 million people a year learn about indigenous rights. It's educating people. It's decolonizing their minds. And that, I think, is powerful. That, I think, is a success. And that, for me, means I stand in the shadows of my heroes and my veterans that day, and I celebrate them, and I clap for them, and I sing for them. I pray for them. Because for me, they gave me life. They gave me voice. They gave me power. And that's incredible what they did. So we owe them at least a thank you um, as much as we can. Thank you, Kent. Before we take questions, would either of you like to say anything before we... And please, please introduce yourself. Please, yeah. My name is uh, Jonathan Lucero, and I'm Hickory Apache. And I was one of the veterans of Alcatraz along with a lot of other people. But what happened was... um, when I got over there, I was a 22-year-old ex-Marine, and I was ready to fight. I was a warrior. I was ready to go. And Richard and Earl Livermore and a couple other people said, we have to talk to you. And they took me in the room, and they said, look, this has to be peaceful. And I said, peaceful? I said, I thought we were, you know, and they explained to me the whole um, ideology. And they said, if you can't be peaceful, you have to leave. And I said, okay, I'll stay. And he put me in head, and he says, you're a Marine. You're in head of security. So at one point, I ended up, uh, they needed 10 security people. And I said, give me 10 Navajo women. I said, nobody will mess with them. You know, nobody, you know. The truth. I come from a matriarchal society, you know. And um, my mother is the strongest person I've ever met, you know. She, when all this uh, relocation was happening, people were literally fleeing. They were saying, great, jobs, you know, all this stuff. Because where we were, there were none. My grandfather left New Mexico at one point, went to Colorado, and they told him, you're Indian. Go back, you know, across the border. You can't do this, you know. So he had to go back. And what happened was, my mom, like I say, is strong. Everybody was going to Oakland. Well, she went to Oakland. She didn't like Oakland. She goes, I like San Francisco. So she went to San Francisco Worked for years, for about probably three or four years. Left me with my grandparents and then came back for me. 
and came out here and she was obsessed with my education. She goes, if you have an education, you've got a head, head start here, you know. She worked two jobs, put me through private school, you know. And here I am in this Catholic all-boys school. The craziest thing was it was Mission Dolores, which was built to deal with the Indian population, an Indian problem, as they called it. And myself and James Vigil were the last two natives to go through that system in 1956, you know. We went through, and there was no history taught at all about indigenous people. And it was only through finding out and finding out more stuff, you know. But in 1997, you know, in 69, I went over and we, we did what we did. And then in 1997, I got a letter from the Department of Interior. And it said, we'd like to talk to you about the graffiti and all this stuff. And I went, uh-oh. <laughs> and they said, we would like all of you, the veterans, to come over here for a talk. And I said, oh, God. Now, they were interviewing people at that time and filming them. And I was the only one that wouldn't go. I said, I'm, I'm not going to be interviewed. I'm not, I don't want the, my picture taken. I don't want anything to do with this. You know, I was paranoid. And what happened was I ended up, um, we went out there. And they had this beautiful, all these seats and everything. I have a picture of it. And they had this um, screen up. And they talked for a little while. And they said, we have something for you. And I said, okay. And they pulled the screen back and it had orange juice and croissants. And everybody looked. All the, all the Native people looked. They go, what is it? And I go, I'm not sure. I go, maybe it's a white man thing, you know. They give you oranges. And, and, then, and so I went over and... Nobody wanted to eat it, you know, so I went over and I had some, and I said, eh, it's, it's okay, you know, so everybody came over, and then, you have to understand, in 1969, the park rangers were linebackers, they were thugs with guns, and they would take you out, you know, so you had to be very careful, well, all of a sudden, I get over there, and there's all these indigenous people as park rangers, this little girl about this big with a little smoky hat, and she was um, uh, Mexican-American, and I went, oh, it's all changed. Everything has changed. And they said, no, no, we want you to keep the graffiti because in 1990 or around there, there were the powers that be in San Francisco wanted to remove it. They said, it's uh, vandalism. We want it removed. And the Park Service fought them, you know. And Paul Scolari and a couple of other people, uh, they sent me this letter, you know, about it. And I said, oh, Paul, I said, why don't you send me the letter? And he goes, FBI has a picture of you painting it. And I go, oh. I said, how did you know it was me? And he goes, the FBI showed me a picture of you doing it. And I said, could I have a picture? And they said, no, it's evidence. And I said, oh, okay. So he gave a talk and told how it was part of the history of Alcatraz and that we had to be, you know. So he said, is there anything we can do for you? And I said, can we have the island? And he says, absolutely not. You know, no. So we ended up, they gave us $25,000 in infrastructure, and we put on the 30-year anniversary. And it, uh, we worked our tails off for, like, almost two years. We met. Indians love meetings. Every two weeks, we'd have to have another meeting. And I'd say, we don't need another meeting, you know. And uh, we pulled it off. We did it, and it was, it was just incredible. It was really good. And that's when I had the 10 down the hall women guarding uh, everything, you know. So the Park Service has done, done right by us that way, you know. And then I said, can I paint, repaint it? 
And they said, oh, no, 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 no. It has to have an environmental impact study, an environmental impact study. And I said, how much does that cost? They said, about 10000 I said, give me five. I'll paint it. And they said, no, no, no. It has to have a study it and everything. So they said, well, where, where'd you get the stuff? And I said, from Sausalito Golden Gate Bridge. I liberated the paint and the brushes <laughs> and painted Indian land, you know. So for the last year, they've been finishing it off, priming it and everything, but you can still see it, you know. So yesterday, I mean, 30, 20 years ago, I asked them, can I do it? They said, no, you can, no, absolutely not. And yesterday, I walked up to Emily Levine, and I said, let me paint it. And she said, okay. And I went, are you serious? And she goes, yeah, but you have to sign a waiver. I said, okay. So I signed about four waivers, put a harness on, they put me up there. And I repainted uh, what I read. And I realized something yesterday. I did it in the 20th century, and I did it in the 21st century. So it'll be there for hundreds of years, I hope. It was very emotional. I started crying, you know. This is what was great. I was there, and I was getting all choked up before I was going up. And there was a park ranger there who was... um, uh, Indian, a dot Indian, not a feather Indian. And he put his arm around me and he goes, come on, let's talk. And he goes, you okay? And I said, no. He goes, you'll be okay, breathe. I go, oh yeah, breathe, breathe, you know. And he got me through it and then uh, we did it. So I'm here. Th- I'm, thank you so much for your book. Thank you. Thank you. That was a wonderful presentation. I really enjoyed that. And thank you for letting me leave that seat. (laughs) Uh, Everything that Jonathan said about his mother is true. My name is Sasheen Littlefeather. And uh, yes, I was on the island 50 years ago. And I'm truthful, and I will admit it. Um, I, at the time 50 years ago, was a very young, insecure Native American Indian girl. And I had come from a very abusive background. And I had tried to commit suicide. We as Native people are born underneath the umbrella of genocide, abuse, and poverty. And as a young girl... I was very confused with my identity and no longer wanted to live. Fortunately, I was not successful at my try or I would not be here with you this evening. So when I went back to school, after being in, uh, I call it kind of incarcerated in a big mental institution, uh, a state mental institution, uh, and I came out of that situation I came back to college. I was given a scholarship. I was a bright girl, a Pell Grant, and a loan. So I had to go to school during the week in order to maintain my grant, my grant, my scholarship, and my loan. So I became a weekender uh, with other Native American students uh, to visit Alcatraz Island. I was not a leader there. I was sort of like a fly on the wall, and I observed other people like Richard Oakes, like Lenata Means Warjack, um, like Adam Fortunate Eagle, 
and others. And in that observation, I learned how to take pride within myself. I learned how to take pride within my own heritage. I'm White Mountain Apache uh, from Arizona. And uh, I'm an urban Indian born and raised in California. I was raised by non-Indian people. And therefore, a lot of the confusion about my own identity. So, in going forward, I uh, went to become a part of the urban Indian community. And I began to dance at powwows. Uh, I began to learn a lot about my own tradition, my own heritage, my own culture. And I became the Bay Area Indian Princess for the Intertribal Friendship House in Oakland. Um, and I began to represent the community at various powwows throughout the Bay Area. I also went to work uh, for KFRC Radio, the Big 610, uh, in San Francisco as a public service director. And in addition to that, uh, I... Uh, began to study about the stereotype, which I always abhorred, about Native American Indian people in the media, in movies, about the racism that was involved in this, and how we are not who we are portrayed on the screen, uh, and that we have a voice, and we are not allowed to say who we are. I became friends with Marlon Brando, and I represented Marlon Brando at the 1973 Academy Awards and refused his award for him on behalf of Native American Indian people because of the stereotype of Native Americans in film and television. I also mentioned the blackout by the media and by the FBI at Wounded Knee in 1973. And for that, I was boycotted out of the industry of film and television and media for 45 years. I could not get a job. I had previously trained at the American Conservatory Theater and was given a full scholarship when I was younger and got other scholarships for Native American Indian people. But I could not get a job in acting. So I have since done many, many things in my life moving forward. It's just not the fact that I was on Alcatraz. Alcatraz was in me. And um, in being a veteran of Alcatraz... I realized that it's not just being in the island, it's what have you done with the inspiration that I received since I have been on that island? Where did I take that inspiration? Where did I go with that inspiration? I worked with Mother Teresa of Calcutta in hospice work with death and dying. I was one of the founding board members of the American Indian AIDS Institute of San Francisco and worked with many Native people 
at the last of their hours here on this earth. I also worked with Michael Smuin of the San Francisco Ballet as a, as a, as the native consultant in the Song for Dead Warrior Ballet for five years. And this is the story of Richard Oakes and the urban Indian in the Bay Area performed by the San Francisco Ballet Company. And we took this ballet around the world and it played at the Kennedy Center for a congressional audience in Washington, D.C. And it received one of the highest awards on PBS, Great Performances Dance in America. So I became very active in the arts, behind the scenes. I supported my girlfriend, Tanaya, in getting a top commercial. She was known as the Mazohola girl. We call it maize, you call it corn. It might not have been me up there, but I pushed her all the way to the top into getting that commercial. <laughs> we had an Indian up there representing Mazola. <laughs> so I was very happy to do that. I helped to establish the Indian Actors Guild through the through uh, uh, SAG, uh, Screen Actors Guild in L.A., with my good friend Will Sampson, who was the Indian in the Cuckoo's Nest, and did many other things working behind the scenes since I was boycotted. My good friend, Chief Oren Lyons of the Onondaga Nation of New York, uh, he told me uh, last year, he said, Sashin, we have to tell the truth. Your story has to be known. So he encouraged me to participate in a documentary about my life, which is now on the screen called Sashin, Breaking the Silence. That piece of film where I refused the Academy Award was boycotted and under wraps for 36 years. The FBI and the Academy Award Board did not want you to see it. Finally, after 36 years, it became public domain, and it traveled all over YouTube, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I want you to know that that night, I was threatened with being put in jail, handcuffed, being threatened with being taken out by the police that night, I was given 60 seconds or less to make that speech, and John Wayne had to be restrained from physically assaulting me that night by six security guards from taking me off the stage. I want you also to know that Native American Indian women, we don't have to raise our fist. We don't have to use profanity. We don't have to scream and yell because the tradition of Native American Indian women and our ancestors are to say things with grace, to say things with courage, to say things with beauty. This is the way we walk. This is the way our ancestors, my ancestors, do things. So that night I walked with courage. I walked with beauty. I walked with truth in the way that my ancestors do. 
and I did it under 60 seconds. I also want you to know that Lee Volman was one of the presenters of that Oscar that night. She's one of my favorite Norwegian actresses, also married to one of my favorite directors, Ingmar Bergman. And also one of the presenters that night was Roger Moore, who played the infamous James Bond. And I was one of, I am the first woman on camera to refuse James Bond. (laughs) And I got all of this inspiration on Alcatraz Island. That's a true Indian story. Thank you. time for some questions? Not exactly a question. First, I want to thank um, the Commonwealth Club director here, and I'm from the Sausalito Historical Society for the last almost 40 years, and we're members here. We've co-sponsored this, and Nora Sawyer was not able to be here because she was sick. She did some excellent um, research about the Sausalito Indian Navy, and I want to I want to say my little bit about my micromead of honor, as it were. I was hitchhiking back from Santa Fe, New Mexico, back in 1969. I was outside of Gallup, New Mexico, and I got picked up by a carload of engines. And they said, where are you going? I said, San Francisco. And they said, okay, we're going there too. Hop in. So we turned north on what was then Route 666 and turned and went through... um, Hopi Land. I've had to research some of this because I didn't remember it all. And we went to Hotevia, and there we picked up the sacred piki bread to bring to uh, to bring to Alcatraz. That the man that picked that was doing this is um, Browning uh, Pipestem, and he did a lot. As I've been researching, he did a lot of the work in sending information and working with the White House at the time. And we stopped in Las Vegas and (laughs) gambled and partied for a while. And then we came to, got to San Francisco late in the evening and came out onto the island and brought the island. And as I understand it, I have the small honor of being the only white man that got to spend time on the nights on the island because I came with these people. And... Um, I was also today I talked with a good friend of mine who is Navajo and who worked at the Dine College and he told me his story which is a lot like some of these other stories which was really fairly awesome he told me the story that his grandfather had in an initiation rite as a very young boy told him that his job was to go out of Navajo land and out into the white world and that his job was to find out what in the white world was good that made the white world strong and great 
And so that became his life goal. And he went to school. He went to the Indian school. Three of his brothers died of alcoholism because of the abuse of that place. But he still went to school. And he met someone in Santa Fe, New Mexico, who tutored him. And as he learned, he then went to St. John's College in Santa Fe because one of the reasons I called him is when I read your statistics and Mr. Craven's statistic as to the incredibly, even now, small percentage of Indians who go to college, I was trying to figure out how in the world did this man get into this rather strange institution. And it was just that he was led there. And also, in terms of the matriarchy, he also told me another interesting story because he was here for Alcatraz and he wanted to go onto the island, but the Navajo women who were there with him said, no, you're too small, you can't go there, it's too dangerous. But since he was in medical school, he got to do the packing of all of the medical supplies. Well, not all, I don't know all, but at least he did the packing for the medical supplies. And so that's my small participation in that. And I wish that the other people in Sausalito who had helped in their own way were able to have been here to participate. Thank you. Since we're short on time, um, if anyone has a question, that would be great. In the back over here? I have a question. I have laryngitis. First of all, I'm very proud of my niece, uh, Rosie Aguilar. Real quick, though, a comment. I was a nurse back in 1970, and I had the honor and fear of taking care of Richard Oaks at Santa Rosa Memorial Hospital. Um, I've also danced one time, and I'm hoping to go on Turkey Day um, because I don't do the Thanksgiving, the myth of it all. And when I was there, I felt spirits, and I thought first it was the lives that were lost in that prison system. But the more I danced, I realized that it was my ancestors and that it was the right thing to do. And I'm very proud of my ancestry, my brothers here, and other friends, my grandma, Elsie Allen, my great-grandmother's Annie Burke, and they went through similar things trying to weave understanding to other cultures by our basketry. Enough of that because we are running late. My question is, I heard recently that our current governor has passed some sort of law about curriculum to change what I remember in third grade. I said I was Filipino because the picture showed a little house on the prairie kite, little girl, and a a guy in a loincloth looked like he was going to cut her head off. I didn't want to be associated with that. So the teacher went around the room. I was the only native in that class. We moved from Ukiah to Santa Rosa, so it was a, a big transition. And that curriculum is so important to, to, to bring up to date, starting in preschool, in my estimation, because those kids are bright, and to go on through graduate school or whatever. But um, I guess the question is, are you aware of it? And are you aware the CEO of Great and Rancheria Casino, their group is getting elders because the thought is that once the governor passes, I don't know, a law or whatever they want to call it, to mandate that, that the that the board of education of different districts and teachers are going to say, okay, you want us to teach us, but what are we going to teach? This group, uh, the Federated Coast Miwok tribe, is starting with their elders, forming a curriculum so that when it happens, whenever, 
they'll have the curriculum. I just wonder, and Kent, I am so honored to be here. I knew Richard briefly. I was terrified of him. And like I told my niece, I never heard that saying before, but he called me a polished apple, meaning I was red on the outside and white on the inside because I had non-alcoholic parents I'm very proud of. My brothers are all successful. I'm a nurse, and I don't know if you ever met a native nurse before, but after I was there for almost six hours, scared because I'm a student. He had horrible, he had come out of ICU, he had all these billiard cue stick thing wounds, and I was more, as a nurse, like, glove right, do this, and he's just talking away, and I, I really, I couldn't understand him by the end of it. I embraced him, and I thought sometime in my lifetime, I will go on Alcatraz. And about 20 years ago, the first time we did the sunrise dance with David Smith's group, our Pomoan from Kashaya, Point Arena, I'm sorry, from Point Arena. Anyway, are you aware in your teaching of any area that the natives are, the natives are doing the curriculum? That's a great question, and uh, that's that's a part of the revolutionary design of what's going on um, in states all across the country. Um, and in Nebraska, um, that's where we get these printouts of the, the curriculum um, and what we have or what I've been doing in a grassroots way and a lot of other indigenous educators um, as we go, we form what are called curriculum days. Um, so a part of this is, is that you can't hold teachers responsible if they never got the training in the first place. So then how do we get access and resources to those teachers to then correct the, the problem of the state curriculum? That we may not be able to change the politicians, but the teachers can do it in their classroom, right? So part of this is we then hold curriculum days, and so then we get that print out of the fifth, eighth, ninth grade curriculums, and we're able to go in and begin to run lesson plans for them, and we're able to give them resources like the um, uh, American Indian Digital History Project to be able to say, "This is here's Aquasasni notes. Here's a lesson that you can use using a national native newspaper from the 1960s and 70s to educate kids about red power in your classroom um, to take it all the way up to the present day, and to really kind of fill in the gaps of where that curriculum is missing, and encourage teachers um, to also be able to take courses um, at the university in Indigenous Studies. Um, this is a part of a teacher certification or graduate certification process. So that's also kind of at another level of getting the resources to teachers that they need and school districts to be able to support them to be able to get access to these extra classes and time that they have to then spend on their own a lot of times beyond the classroom and what they're already doing for very little pay, which is another issue here, right? Um, in the sense of what they give and the sacrifices they give on the front lines of making that change and not having the resources backed by the states in regards to um, teachers that have to work two jobs and yet at the same point in time try to fend for themselves in the classes on very little resource money or allocations or outdated textbooks in general. I mean, it's, it's the start of a major system that needs a complete overhaul in this country. And oftentimes it's about us coming together as educators and using that coalition politic again uh, to be able to kind of reinforce that change and hopefully get the politicians to catch back up with the rest of us. 
right? And making those changes official, but giving the actual money and support that is needed to fund that even further. But I really appreciate your question. And I really appreciate that you were there with Richard um, in the very critical time of coming in um, um, out of the coma um, that he was in too. And yeah, no, I think uh, for Richard, he has this, he had a certain way too of trying to uh, excite people into the movement and bring people in and challenge people as well. Um, but the thing is, is like, even though he opened his eyes, he never stopped thinking about other indigenous peoples and how do I inspire you into the movement, right? And those become kind of interesting to say. Uh, I think he reported later on that he had this dream uh, when he was in a coma that kept coming back. And it was um, a dream in which um, his body would fall apart into pieces and then begin to reassemble again. And it was this important dream that it kept happening over again and over again until his eyes opened again. Um, and then he was whole. And the first thing that he asked for when his eyes opened, the interesting thing is he was like, he saw Rocky, one of his sons over there, and he said, uh, we need to go get Rocky a baseball bat. He needs something to do. Uh, so he thought about his kids the first thing. And, you know, one thing about Richard that a lot of people don't know, I mean, one of the th reasons that he moves from uh, the East Coast uh, to the to the West Coast, um, he had a first marriage. He was married to an Italian woman, um, at least on the East Coast, and her father was a, a police officer. And he knew Richard had a rap sheet. He served time in Elmira Reformatory Prison for t stealing that meat truck. And um, this uh, sheriff didn't want his daughter marrying an Indian. And he said, you know, I'll, I'll never allow you to be uh, a father to, to your child. I'll never allow you to be a husband to my daughter. And literally, Richard uh, was not allowed to basically have access, um, at least to his own child. And I think for him, you know, a lot of people ask me what motivated him, you know, to move. And I think it was the loss. I think his heart was broken at that point. And I think he came to San Francisco to be born again. And when he met Annie... That's why he became a better father, because he didn't have the opportunity to be the father in the first place. And so he kind of lived vicariously through the, those kids becoming his own kids. Um, and I think, you know, that's really important to see, you know, who he was as, as a native man and this idea of what does it mean to be masculine um, and what does it mean to be vulnerable? What does it mean to be emotional? I mean, he had these characteristics that at a time was something where people were just saying, well, no, you got to be like Iron Eyes Cody and having a teardrop when the trash is thrown at your feet, right? No, no. It's, it's okay to be emotional. It's okay to have that embrace. And I think, you know, that's one of those things, at least for, for Richard, that uh, was very motivational um, in the sense of like learning by writing this biography. I was also learning about myself. There was also kind of this... Um, idea of self-discovery through that um, and walking that journey with him um, and trying to learn more about him. Um, but yes, thank you for, for your question. Well, I want to uh, chime in and uh, thank everyone for coming on behalf of the Commonwealth Club and Marine Conversations. Kent, thank you so much for coming tonight and educating all of us. And Rose, thank you for leading the conversation. Uh, we uh, Kent will be sticking around. We have some more books left. If you haven't bought one and you want to get the full story, I encourage you to buy the book. And if you have questions, feel free to come on up and, and continue. But uh, thank you all for coming. Have a great night.